Hello, and welcome to the Summit Church Podcast. Our messages are designed to help teach and equip you on your journey to lead people to follow Christ. We hope that this message will inspire and encourage you, no matter where you are on your journey towards Christ. If you have questions, want to talk, or want to learn more about Summit, visit us at summitniles.com. Thanks for listening. Take your Bibles, turn with me to the Old Testament, the book of Judges, chapter 6. Glad to be here, grateful for you. God loves you, I love you, that's how it should be. Left to our own selfish desires, we become worldly, and I think we become careless, maybe even mean to each other, right? But God's grace frees us from self and sin and helps us to love one another. So turn to someone this morning and say, you real good people. You do that? You real good people. Last week we started a message entitled Praxis. It's what you do in order to ascertain the, the, the results that you desire. It's, um, praxis is it's the accepted practice or custom. It's an idea that is translated into action. Something in reality rather than theory. So for example, praying can be praxis. Praying as a result of your Christian faith is an example of praxis. You, you believe God can answer prayer, and so you pray. You believe that God can heal, and so you, you pray for people, ask God to heal them. You, so prayer is, is putting what you believe, the, your theology of prayer, into practice. We talked about orthodoxy, um, ortho, meaning straight, uh, the whole idea of, of, of doxy, that doxa, that word means teaching, so straight teaching, straight uh, determination, straight opinion. Um, it's hard, it's fast, it's unmovable. Uh, so orthodoxy, the straight teaching of God's word, orthodoxy emphasizes correct belief. Orthopraxy, on the other side of the same coin, emphasizes correct behavior. Conduct that is ethical based on what you believe. Correct belief leads to correct behavior. If you're thinking wrong, stinking thinking is going to end up in a mess. So if you're thinking right, you have some hope of not, not only thinking right, but, but acting right. So we know what we mean, we say what we mean, but we mean what we say and how we live um, by how we live what we say. So, James 4, 17, I'm going to remind you of this verse again. If anyone knows, anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. Does anyone want to cut that out of the Bible? I mean, I do sometimes. I want to cut that out. Say, oh, yeah. Last week we talked about small things that make a big difference. Let me just review a little bit. Sometimes we despise those small things. We, we become dissatisfied if we think it's not, you know, it's, this, is, this is below us. We forget that small things make a big difference. Back in the day of Zechariah, 70 years of exile, they started to build a city. The temple had been destroyed. 
God was with them, and yet they felt they, they, they failed to make the connection. There was this, this humble, simple beginning of, of starting to do what God was leading them to do. They started and they stalled, and then some of them felt like it wasn't worth it. The task was so huge. The work, you know, to date was so small, and, and even those, those little steps were going to uh, lead to big things and accomplish the goal. It, it was like, man, this doesn't even, it doesn't even, it's not worth our time. It's not worth the bother. They forgot that little things over a length of time creates a huge impact. In the book of Zechariah, we're warned not to despise the small things. Maybe it is the time that, you know, the small time. Maybe it's the, the, the time that you, you spend in fellowship with God. You think that missing that quiet time, it, it won't really matter. Or maybe it's the time that you need to spend in fellowship with others. You think, well, missing church, it's, it's, it's kind of hard and, 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 and difficult to schedule, and, and so it won't really matter. Or maybe um, the, the small things, it's making sure that you're on time for meetings or work, or a small thing of, of getting your homework done and turning it in. Maybe it's the small thing of checking the oil in your vehicle. I don't know of many parents that don't love their kids that haven't had a conversation with their kids about checking the oil once in a while. Um, before you start the mower, check the oil. It, am I the only one that says that? I hope not. It's a small thing that can make a huge difference. It's the small thing. Fix what is loose before it falls apart. Or maybe it's, it, it's, you begin to change how you think or feel about something. Maybe it's a small thing, but, but, but you're putting off making a decision to change something that will affect a relationship. Maybe it's a small thing of saving a little bit more money, a little bit more of your earnings. Little things make a big difference. If you ignore that principle, you will do it to your own detriment. Little things make a big difference. Now today, Judges, the life of Gideon. We're looking at a proper view of, situ of self and situations. We, we, we need, don't we, a proper view of ourselves, and we need a proper view of the situations we're in. In our text today, we find our friend Gideon confused about himself. He's confused about his situation. And folks, when you're confused about, confused about yourself and when you're confused about your situation, that is a lethal combination. If you don't have a proper view of yourself or your situation, you can get far afield in a hurry. You miss the opportunity to fulfill your purpose. You can get so discombobulated that you're, that, that you're on full send in the wrong direction. An example of that, quickly, was um, Adolf Hitler. In mein, mein Kampf, he had such a distorted view of himself and a distorted view of his situation that he said in Mein Kampf, which is his autobiographical manifesto, it describes the process by which he, he became um, anti-Semitic. Um, it outlines his political ideology, his plans for Germany. In Mein Kampf, Adolf Hitler said this. He said, if God made me and loves me, then whatever I choose to do is approved by God. He had such a distorted view of self 
of himself and his circumstances. Um, the, I mean, he, he, was, he was wrong, dead wrong. N- you know, nichts kam rausch, right? He was wrong. You have to have a proper view of self and your situation. Um, one, one example of someone who does have a proper view of themselves, recently uh, Delta Company, uh, at a recent graduation ceremony of the military, uh, they handed out a program, and it, it described Delta Company. They said, we are disciplined, physically fit, and lethal. A proper view of self in their situation. Gideon needed a word to help him think right so he could walk right. He needed to get him his thinking straight so that he could get his life straight. Judges chapter 6, notice verse 1, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hand of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, strongholds. And whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. And they camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. And they came up with their livestock and with their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian was so impoverished... Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. Now, in those verses, we begin to understand the story, the situation that Gideon was in. In their their prosperity and in their complacency, Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. The The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Right off the bat, that's the first thing we learned from this passage of Scripture. And the Lord then handed them over to the Midianites. The Midianites were oppressing the Israelites. And and in one sense, they couldn't actually see it, but God was using the Midianites. God was expressing mercy and grace to the Israelites by oppressing them with the Midianites because it was forcing them, at the end of those verses we just read, to call back on God. So they they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Again, here's that, that pattern in life. They didn't have a proper view of themselves or their circumstances, their situations, and they rejected God, and because of it, they were oppressed by the Midianites. There was God's judgment. Now he is using that judgment to bring them back to the point where they're calling on God, right? I don't know if you've ever had that experience in your life, but that has happened to me in my life. Times, listen, I'm following Jesus. Things are going good. Think, well, I'm doing pretty good. And all of a sudden, you begin to say, God, he begins to to work on you. There's things in your your life that he puts in your life that he uses to to, to draw you back to himself. And so the people were afraid, and they were hiding in dens and caves, strongholds to avoid the Midianites. The Israelites had crops coming ready for harvest, and the Midianites would come and steal it all. They, whatever they didn't take or steal, uh, they destroyed. Everything that the people had worked for was gone. You know, sin does that to people. It will rob you. We've already talked about that. Many people lose everything they've worked for because they, they won't stop sinning. Many people lose their marriages because they won't stop sin. Their sin made all their work useless. The Midianites came and got it all. It was widespread. 
As far as Gaza, this was no little thing. It was it, 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 that whole area. How would, you, how would you like to get run over by a camel? Right? Look what it says. And they came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. Impossible to count them or their camels. Well, you double hump beast, here he comes again. And he's going to plow right through your fields. He's going to eat everything you just planted, everything you tilled. Finally, Israel cries out to the Lord. And their prayer, interesting enough, oh, isn't this true of our lives? That prayer is often our last resort instead of our first resource. <coughs> Excuse me. Look at verse 7. When the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the land of the Egyptians, and I delivered you from all the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you've not listened to me. Well, He was sent a prophet. See, in verse 8, he sent them a prophet. God reminds them of everything that he did for them. In essence, what takes place is that Israel needed to remember what, what God had done for them in the past in order for them to face what they were facing right now. They knew they were in slavery before. Now they're being oppressed in another way. They weren't actually slaves, but they might as well have been because everything they worked for got taken away from them. They need to be reminded of the love of God. They need to be reminded of the power of God. They need to be reminded of the provision of God. God sent a prophet to tell them, hey, you've not obeyed me. The trouble you're in is because you haven't obeyed me. You said you believed me, but your behavior doesn't match that. I told you I'm the Lord your God. Don't worship all these other gods. What are all these, these false gods, all the Asherah poles, the gods of Baal, all these things that they were worshiping? You see, the problem wasn't, now watch this, the problem wasn't that the Midianites were so strong. The problem was that the Israelites were so disobedient. You say, oh, the Midianites are so strong. No, the problem is the Israelites were so disobedient. Now, isn't that much of our problems today? It's not that the devil is so strong that the church can't defeat them. The problem is that the church is so disobedient, so disobedient that Satan oppresses us. Okay, I'm going to have to go to the hospital and get some blood. I'm going to have to get some IVs, oxygen. I'm trying to help you. Israel thought the problem was the Midianites. The real problem was Israel. We love to blame others for our problems. Look at verse 11. And the angel of the Lord came, and he sat down under the oak, and Ophrah, well, that belonged to Joash, the Abishrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. Now, that ought to just shake you up a little bit, because when you're threshing wheat in a wine press, you know, that's like you know, using your microwave to, 
um, grind your coffee. When, when, you're, when you're threshing grain in a wine press, it, something bad about to happen, right? That ain't good. Somebody's confused. And, and notice, it says, the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon and said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Pardon me, my Lord? Gideon replied, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. Gideon is working to save a wheat harvest from the Midianites, and he's hiding. Normally, threshing wheat is done in the open air. When we were in Africa, we watched them thresh um, rice and separate rice from the the chaff, and, and, and a little bit of wind is a good thing. It's, you want it to be out in the open, on top of a mountain. You want it on a hill where when, when, when the wind can blow away the chaff. But in a wine press, that's where grapes are processed. It often was, a, it was sunken into the, the ground. It was, he, he, Gideon was making do in order to hide from the Midianites. The angel of the Lord finds him at work. Now, that's just a side note. You say, where's the Lord going to find people that he's after. <clears throat> he's going to find him at work. Now, it doesn't mean... <laughs> I don't have time to unpack this all. This might be another whole praxis message, but when the Lord calls people, oftentimes he finds them at work. He found Moses and David in, the, you know, in a pasture tending sheep. He found... Uh, Elisha, who was out in a field plowing, working. He called disciples, and they were busy fishing. And God called those people. It appears to me that the Lord, he, he, when, he's, when, he's, when he's seeking after people, um, he, he goes after people who are working hard, tending to their regular lives. Interestingly enough, it is Satan is the one who seems to go after those who are idle. Got nothing to do, and so he he bombards those who have nothing to do. Their idleness is a source of it's it's an open door for Satan to tempt people and to remember David when he sinned, when all the men were at war and he's on the the rooftop looking down over the city. He the men of the the city are fighting, and King David is on the rooftop, and that's when he finds Bathsheba. You see, idleness is is the playground for Satan's ideas. The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. That's a strange greeting for someone who's hiding out from the Midianites. Mighty warrior, what say you? Pardon me, he says. Maybe Gideon wondered who the Lord was talking to. But the angel of the Lord said, you're a mighty warrior. He said, I don't, don't, I don't appear to be a mighty warrior. And, and, and by the way, where is God? I know that God thing, has done things in the past, but right now, not so much. I know that God was with us before, but now not so much. You, you see me down here threshing grain in a wine press for heaven's sake? Pardon me, sir. We used to be blessed, not so much anymore. 
You see, Gideon was thinking the problem was God. The problem was actually Israel. God did not forsake Israel. Israel forsook God. And Gideon, though, I'll give it to him, he was not pleased with his situation. At least he cared about the problems they faced. He knew that God could make a difference. You take a closer look, you can, you, you can even identify the gospel here because, well, <laughs> for one, who, who was the angel? You look at that and say, who, angel of the Lord, who, who was that? If you look at the context of Scripture, scholars, as you study this thing out, will point to the fact that this, this wasn't the incarnation of the New Testament when, 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 when God thought, you know, when, when thought equality, uh, Christ thought equality with God was not something to be grasped, but took on human form, the incarnation of the New Testament, Jesus Christ, God himself, fully God, fully man. This was not the incarnation of the New Testament, but most scholars will look at this passage of Scripture and say, this, this was, a, this was um, you know, and the angel of the Lord and, and the references here that implies that this, this was Jesus having a meeting with Gideon. Not just an angel, but God himself appearing. Um, an Old Testament example of the presence of Christ. In fact, if you look at verses, verse 14, it says, The Lord turned to him and said, look at verse 16, The Lord answered. In fact, let me read those verses. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength that you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand, for I... Am I not sending you? Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied. This is the second time. How can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. And the Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. And there, there you begin to see this gospel, not only the, the, the presence of Christ, but Gideon's response. See, the Lord is sending him to be um, a person who, who maybe was the least of the tribe of Manasseh because he three claims, why would you send me? Because I'm the least, the tribe of Manasseh. Remember that Micah um, prophecy that simply said that, you know, from, from the least, you know, little, little, oh, oh, Ephrathath, you know, this, this small little town would come a mighty warrior. There you begin to see the gospel. Look, God uses humanly small and or weak people to do big things. He says, go in the strength that you have. What did the, what did the Lord see in Gideon? Some scholars have looked at this and identified things that, characteristics that might be true of Gideon's life and, and need to be true, maybe are true in your life. Gideon had some humility. He was threshing wheat in hiding. He said, well, that was fear. Well, it could have just been some humility as well. Caring. He was concerned about Israel's situation. He, he expressed concern. He didn't like it. He said, listen, in the past, God was with his people, and he isn't right now, and I'm not too happy about it. I'm not okay with that. There was knowledge. He knew God had done great things in the past. There was a spiritual hunger. He wanted to see God do great things again. He had a teachable spirit because, indeed, when he was having interactions with the angel of the Lord. And the Lord said to him, he had a teachable spirit. He listened to what the angel of the Lord said, and he trusted God. He believed God could do it again. But what he was struggling with is he couldn't figure out how God was going to do all that through him, little old me, my situation, the circumstance that I'm in. 
He failed to recognize that God wanted to do something through him. He couldn't see himself doing great things for God. He sees himself as small, insignificant, unworthy, unable. Things just happened to him. He wasn't, he wasn't there as a catalyst, much less a leader, to try and, 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 and produce something that God would, you know, be a part of what God was doing. He, he just kind of felt like he was just in the crowd, just kind of long for the run. You see, and probably what Gideon didn't need was more self-confidence. What he needed was some more God-confidence. My God can do all, all that he wants to do, and he, he might even use me. Look at verse 17. Gideon replied, if, if now I have found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that is really you talking to me. Please don't go away until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. And the Lord said, I will wait until you return. Gideon went aside, prepared a young goat, and from an ephah of flour he made bread without yeast, putting the meat in a basket and its broth in a pot. He brought them out and offered them to him under the oak. Now watch what happens. When you take what you have and you offer it to God, look what happens. The angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened bread, place them on the rock, pour out the broth, and Gideon did so. And the angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread with the tip of the staff that was in his hand, and fire flared from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread, and the angel of the Lord disappeared. And when Gideon realized that it was the angel of the Lord, he, ex he exclaimed, Ah, sovereign Lord, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace, do not be afraid, you're not going to die. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord there, and he called it, The Lord is peace. To this day it stands in Orpha of the Aberats. So there he is taking what he has, a little bit, putting it in the hands of God, and God's demonstration that God is the one that, 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 that consumed that offering with a, with, a, with a single touch, the power of God came to bear. Finally dawned on him that God wanted to use him. He wanted a sign then. He, he, he confirmed it, um, and God confirmed it with Gideon, the sign, and, and fire rose out of the rock and consumed the meat and the bread. He wasn't wrong for asking for confirmation. You see, if God is sending you to deliver a nation, you better make sure. Now, don't ask God to confirm what you're supposed to already know. God, you know, here's, this, would be, this would be a useless endeavor. Lord, do you want me to love people? Idiot. We're in Praxis series, right? That's where we're at. We're putting the cookies on the bottom shelf. I got boots on. I hope you got boots. God, should we love people? All right, you already know that God is love. What did he say? You love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and what? Love your neighbor yourself. Don't waste your time praying about that. Now, you might ask him how you should apply that love or how do you direct that or to whom you direct it um, specifically? It's not wrong to ask God to confirm something. God confirmed that he could consume something without the help of human involvement. Poof. He puts his rod to that rock and it's gone. It was a lesson Gideon needed to learn before God would use him to defeat the Midianites. And the result was when Gideon saw that and he had eyes to see it, and he, and, and he trusted God, and he, and he came to a point where he said, God, are you going to do it? God did it. His immediate response was worship. Not fear anymore, even though he, there was a, a holy reverential fear. It wasn't fear. He said, there is peace here. 
He had peace. The result was that God obeyed God right away. Gideon responded to what God told him to do. A couple of things. When we tear down our fears, God builds up our faith. In fact, when you look in those next verses, he says, all right, what, what, what do you want me to do? And he, and, and he says, how, how about you go into town and destroy those, those idols of Baal and that Asherah, those Asherah poles? Whew. Really? And he goes in at night. Maybe there was some wisdom there. Maybe there was you know, st- you know, kind of a stealth deal. But he tore down the altar to Baal. He cut down the Asherah poles, and then he built another altar, and he offered a sacrifice to God. Interestingly enough, when the offering was specified, he asked for a seven-year-old bull. How long had they been in captivity? How long had they been being oppressed by the Midianites? Those early verses said seven years. A seven-year-old bull, born about the time the Midianites began oppressing the Israelites. And the oppression was about to end, and Gideon did it at night, but he did it. He was afraid of the townspeople, but he knew God was the one he really answered to. By the way, Proverbs 29, 25, fearing people is a dangerous trap, but trusting the Lord means safety. That's a verse you might be able to hang your hat on this week, some situation. Now watch this. They worship the true God, Yahweh. They also worship Baal. All the people, they worship, they worship Yahweh, but they added Baal. And that was a big no-no. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And this, this of course, when, those, when the Baals got destroyed and, um, and all that, that caused quite an uproar. You read about it in verse 28 and following. Somehow they figured out real quickly who did it. Now Gideon, who was hiding from the Midianites, now is hitting, hiding from the Israelites. His, his work went from threshing grain in a wine press hidden to being on full display for all the community to, to, to see. You see, one of the other things interesting, God was a, a Baal was one of the gods of the weather. And so they figured that they needed to keep the, the weather gods happy. And so now this is further going to mess up their harvest. They've been messed up for all these years, and now it's going to happen some more. Oh, you know, Gideon has destroyed our weather gods. Gideon's father, Joash, speaks for his son. They come to him and say, listen, bring this kid out, this son of yours. He needs to die for this. And he spoke some wisdom for the city that day. He, he, he said this, well, if Baal is ticked off and he's real, let him go get Gideon. Isn't that a good response? By the way, you tell me what a stick fashioned by the hands of man. You call that God. Is that a God? No, that's a stick fashioned by the hand. So, in one sense, was, was, did Gideon have, have to fear a stick, <laughs> a stone, uh, an idol? I mean, obviously fighting um, principalities, powers, rulers of this dark age. But his, even his father said, listen, if Baal is the offended party, he can defend himself. What are they going to do to Gideon? So when we acknowledge our humanity, God affirms his sovereignty. So we have to tear down our fears. God builds up our faith. We acknowledge our humanity. God affirms his sovereignty. Verses 33 through 35, God's spirit came upon Gideon for the task of delivering Israel. And uh, you'll see what happened in those verses. That he blew his trumpet and 30,000, 30, over 30,000 men showed up to fight. We can go get the Midianites. 30,000 showed up. I'm not sure what trumpets you have to blow. The other day I was at a football game and there were some people that were trying to blow these long plastic things. 
um, the mo- I mean, it sounded like sick cattle. Um, I think, I don't know, sounded like sick cattle, and I think their lips got sore, and that made me laugh. But they sounded terrible. Honk, honk, he's got his horn out there, his little bugle, he's tooting that thing away, 30,000 men show up. But what trumpet has the Lord given to you that you need to sound? So I'm in a helpless, hopeless situation. Miller, you would not believe where I work. You would not believe my neighborhood. If you saw the people that were in my community, you wouldn't believe it. There is no hope for us. And maybe it's time for you to sound a trumpet. At the sound of a trumpet, bugle, bugle, toot, 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 and 30,000 men showed up. If you read the end of the chapter, Gideon asked God for more confirmation. Maybe his faith was weak, but he was willing to be convinced, and I'll give it to him. And in Hebrews, by the way, Hebrews 11, verse 32, Gideon's name is listed in those who are in the, the hall of faith. So wherever else this lands, before it was over with, in the New Testament, he's one of those guys that is, is, is in the hall of faith. Those who are commended for their faith. Not only did God confirm his will in a miraculous way, if you read, read later in the next chapter, Judges 7, God provides in a miraculous way and Gideon defeats the Midianites. What is interesting is 30,000 men showed up and God said in the first part of, so here's, here's that last point, we identify our pride and God increases our power. When, when he had 32,000 men and God said, if you go defeat the Midianites with this army, you're going to take credit for it. So here's the deal. Stand up in front of them and say, anyone who's afraid, go home. And you know what? <clears throat> I, hope, I hope the church isn't, I hope the army isn't reflect, the army, Gideon's army isn't reflective of the church. When tough times come, and if you're afraid, go home, and all the chicken twits take off. They went, they lost two-thirds like that. Two-thirds left. From 30,000, they're now down to 10. But remember, God's in charge of this deal, and he said, by the way, you still have too many. Take them down to the creek. Let's see how they, how they drink water. Those that put their, their face to the creek and drink water that way, send all those guys home, those who scoop water with their hand and and lap it like a dog out of their hand. Keep those. Gideon's doing the count, and he's going, oh, brother. And 300 of them drank water. They were part of the army. Well, man, I hope we got good stuff because, you know, we're, we're fighting the meeting. I hope, I hope we got good tools. God looks at him and says, well, take a pitcher, a candle, and a trumpet. So now, down to 300, take a pitcher, I mean a, a clay pitcher, a pot, a candle, a little torch, and then back to these bugle things again. Trump, trump, trumpet, trumpet, trumpet. 
and let's go fight the Midianites. And guess what? God destroyed the Midianites. You see, if you don't have a proper view of yourself and a proper view of who God is and your circumstances, you'll never make it. I'm, I'm so out of time. But we're in so, so much trouble in our world today. Here's the praxis. I'm going to invite the team to come. Start moving this way. Here's the praxis. You can have all you need at your disposal, but until you tear down your fears, God won't build up your faith. Until you identify your pride, God won't increase your power. Until you acknowledge your humanity, God won't affirm his sovereignty. What act of obedience is God calling you to? It may not be what he's calling others to. What is he calling you to? Maybe others can do something you can't do. But in your life, God's calling you to it. What are you trying to do on your own that God says, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit? What happens if you have your hands on something that belongs in God's hands? What areas is your pride still limiting your ability to please God? Ironic, isn't it? Your pride. What you think you do well is keeping you from doing well. Praxis. What situation do you have all wrong? You're cowering in fear and God says, don't hide. I put you there for a reason. He says, oh, look at me. I'm thrashing grain in a wine press. You can bring it all above ground. If you have a wine press mentality, you may miss what God wants for your life. What view of self or situations do you have that needs to be seen through the lens of God's sovereignty and not your own human ability? Well, I could never do anything about this. Probably not, but could God? Yeah. I mean, do you have this picture of clay pots, candles, and tutus. I mean, so listen. Let me let me give you, let me give you a bick, a kazoo, you know, and a. What are we all carrying now? You know, fancy water bottle. Take take a water bottle, a kazoo, and a and a bick lighter, and let's go fight the Russians or the whatever enemy. You'd say you'd look at me and say you're nuts. And sometimes the situations in your life are just that tilted and stilted. You say, God, you have to come through. What view of self or situations do you, you, you need to be seen through God's lens of sovereignty, not your human ability? How long are you going to limit God and be susceptible to the oppression of the enemy in your life? At what point do you get tired of working hard and losing it all because the enemy is taking everything that you have? We sing the song, no, the enemy can't take what I have, I belong to you. But are you tired of getting ripped off? Or maybe you need to, you're ready to live out the truth. You see, this stuff, is, it's either true or it isn't. God is either able or he isn't. He's faithful or he isn't. He, obedience to him either matters or it doesn't. But we're about to find out because with a proper view of self and circumstances, God, I am who you say that I am. 
I am a child of God. And if God can use Gideon with a clay pot and a candle and a toot toot, he can use you in your situation. Seven years of disaster because of disobedience. And God turned it all around because of obedience and faith in Christ. Lord, help us to be those people who are your children, a child of God, obediently walking out our faith in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us for this message from the Summit Church Podcast. Again, if you have questions, visit us at summitniles.com. Now go and be the church in the world.